Savannah, Savannah communities. It's 7 o'clock at night. That's right, 1,900 hours, and you're listening to the Polo Salguero Show, where the heat is on and we educate our community through interviews with professionals. Today in studio, we uh, we will have a remote guest. He's gonna be uh, we're gonna be on the phone with him. It's uh, Professor Weisberger from uh, Bristol Community College, and today's program is gonna be on uh, the Holocaust. Uh, so give me uh, one second, and I'll get everything organized for you guys. Professor Weisberger. Yes. Hi. How are you? It's Paul Salguero. Uh, hi, Paul. Hi. Thank you again for uh, wanting to do uh, this segment on the Holocaust and. Uh, get some uh, good educational information out there for our, our listeners. Um, one thing that I, I didn't do at my last show that I'd like to do in the beginning is really talk about what this show is and what it's my, what the goal of it is. And um, that is I want to educate and inform our public and our community through interviews uh, with professionals, and I want our listeners to uh, have learned something after, after they've uh, listened to uh, this program. Um, I'd like to tell a little bit about myself uh, to our listeners, too, because maybe some people aren't familiar with me. Um, I was a recent uh, graduate from my master's degree in criminal justice. Uh, I was a form- I was an alum. I am an alum for uh, Bristol Community College. Uh, Anna Maria. Oh, Co- What's that? Yay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, Anna Maria College, and uh, I was a former uh, candidate for state representative in, uh, in Atterborough as well. And so I came up with the program idea of really educating our public because I think it's uh, I think it's a great idea to really have an educational program on the radio. Uh, so today's segment, uh, we're going to talk about the Holocaust uh, uh, from seven to nine. And uh, if you'd like, um, if you could give our listeners a brief uh, bio about uh, yourself and uh, kind of the position you're in right now at uh, Bristol Community College and what exactly you do. Um, all right. Well, thank you. Uh, I am. Um, I've been working at Bristol Community College for <laughs> more years than I'd like to think—about forty years almost. And um, for, I've been uh, teaching history. Uh, in addition, I was for many years I was a coordinator of tutoring at the college. Um, but I t- retired, and then three years ago, I began the um, Holocaust Center which didn't exist before, in order to do what you're actually trying to do tonight, which is to educate the public, not only about the, uh, the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust, but also the uh, other genocides. And uh, I have a um, background, in my have degrees, a master's doctorate in history and higher education. And as I said, I've been at the college for many years. Um, so... Uh, that's, I'll talk more about basically what the Holocaust Center is, but that's sort of my background. Oh, wonderful. And uh, uh, my interest really uh, began uh, with the Holocaust was um, one, one spring break I went uh, when I, because I went to school in D.C. for a bit at uh, George Washington University. And when I transferred back um, to Massachusetts, uh, a bunch of friends of mine, uh, we, we were thinking about a place to go for spring break, and I said, you know, there's a lot of museums in D.C., and I think we'd have a lot of fun down there. So we went, and one of the museums that uh, we went to was the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And right. it, it, it's so, it, it's really moving um, when you're there, and we, you, you learn so much, and, and, and that's why I wanted to do this segment was because, and we talked briefly uh, prior to the show, but it, it's that... 
I feel as though when we're in high school and, and, and later on, we don't really get in too in-depth with the Holocaust. You know, you read the book Night, you read the diary of Anne Frank, but, but then that's really, honestly, that's about it. And I feel like, you know, after going to the museum, you learn so much and, and how it's, it's a complex um, topic. And, it's, you know, there's so many components that are working uh, on it. But um, now, would you like to talk a little bit about the, some of the programs the Holocaust Center is doing now? Or would you like to, uh, you, would, you want to end the show when we talk about that? Well, I'll bring it up now, you know. Sure. Your uh, listeners have to leave um, behind in for two hours. That's really great. I hope your audience does do that. But people have uh, different things. So anyway, uh, as I said, this, we're going into our fourth year, and our mission really is to provide education about the Holocaust and other genocides. And what we've done and what we're planning on doing for this year, uh, we bring in speakers, um, uh, for example, survivors. And this year, in November uh, 7th and 8th, we're bringing in a survivor from Los Angeles, uh, Henry Oster. 90, he'll be 90 years old, and he's a survivor of a number of camps, has a book called The Kindness of the Hangman, if you can believe it. And um, he's going to be speaking both at a local high school, uh, at uh, Conley High School, it's a Catholic high school in Fall River, but it's going to be offered to other high schools in the region, even in Attleboro, if we could arrange for teachers if they want to bring some of their students um, they could, uh, uh, Conley is willing to uh, to host them. So that's going to be, anytime we've had survivors, it's always incredible because you can talk about it, but to hear someone who actually went through that experience, um, it's quite, uh, <clears throat> it's quite an education, but it's also, you know, it's uh, very emotional. Absolutely. Anyway, and and I, one thing. Yep. Um, we're also, uh, October 19th, again, I, again, I don't know if the teacher's out there, uh, we're having a conference on um, using a night, you just mentioned Ellie Wiesel's night, as a way of jumping off point as, uh, to develop curriculum materials around the Holocaust, and that's going to be open to basically middle and high school teachers from the region. Uh, that's going to be at, at our BCC Fall River campus, but we're hoping to attract uh, high school Teachers who could get off, it'll be on a Friday, basically from 9 to 2.30. Uh, we have a, a man coming in from the uh, from New Hampshire, the Cohen Center, Tom White, who is an expert on uh, Holocaust education and curriculum. So we've had, we've had some of these, um, uh, we've had trainings before, and teachers get a lot out of it and get, get material that they can use. So... Um, if there's any, I'll give you to say it now, if there's any teachers who are interested in attending, they can call me at uh, 508-333-7946, and uh, we can give you more information. I will be reaching out. I already started to, to the schools. I know school hasn't started yet. So that's, uh, that's something we do on October 19th, and then we have Henry Oster coming. November 5th, we're doing a fundraiser again for your audience, anybody, we uh, have to raise money to uh, run the Holocaust Center, and last year we had a, um, an art exhibit by a man named Samuel Beck, who's a survivor artist, incredible art, and it was exhibited in our, um, we call it, in our art gallery, 
and we had a uh, opening, and it was there for about a month, and we had students coming from various schools, as well as our own students and people from the community. But anyway, this year, we're doing a music program. We're having November 5th. It's going to be uh, at begin 6.30 on the Monday night, and it's music of composers uh, who were in the, uh, called the Theresienstadt concentration camp. Uh, these are composers, most of whom were eventually murdered, but we have their music, and it's being played by the Hawthorne String Quartet, which is an internationally known music uh, ensemble, and also narrated by <coughs> um, a man named Mark Ludwig, who's the... Uh, who's put this all together, and he's going to talk about these composers and show slides to also hear the music. So that's going to be November 5th, and uh, that's a fundraiser. We're going to be asking people to donate money uh, to that, uh, you know, to, and we'll have food. It's be 6.30 to 7.30 will be a reception in our art gallery, and then we'll go to the auditorium, which where we will have the uh, show, uh, the, the music, you know, the program. So again, they keep an eye on that. And anybody more interested can call me at that number. So those are two programs, three, um, three programs, actually. And um, in the spring, we're having a conference on women and the Holocaust. That's going to be in April. Uh, we have another program. Um, there were we're, we're, um, two other programs that we're going to be sponsoring. So basically, we're doing programs including conferences, uh, speakers, uh, who are either scholars in the field, uh, in the Holocaust studies, or survivors who, who experienced it. Or the, so um, we have, well, I think, six this year, seven, six or seven this year. Um, and we, we've done that for the last couple years, usually attracting over a 1,000 people who come to the... Most of these programs are in, in the Fall River campus, Ellsbury Street, although we've had some programs in the... I would like to do something in the Arrowball campus, so that's something I'm going to be talking to some of the folks at the Attleboro campus, as you know, at BCC, and also New Bedford and and, and Taunton. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> that's that's giving you a lot. Uh, that's what we're about. But the other thing is we do have a resource center in um, on the second floor of our library, the Holocaust Center. We have a lot of books that people can borrow, and we have artifacts that they can view. So anybody coming to our campus could, could come and take out books or see what we have to offer. Um, the last thing I want to mention is an exciting, interesting project. We call it the Button Project. These are clothing buttons. We're collecting 1.5 million buttons, which are the amount of children that were murdered during the Holocaust. And so far, we've collected over 500,000 buttons. Um, and our art department is making murals out of some of those buttons. We have one to Van Frank, another of a uh, survivor named Stephen Ross. And so, if, again, anybody in your audience is out there, if you have buttons that you want to contribute to us or even help us, we, you know, we have to count these buttons and sort them out, please contact me, 508-333-7946. But we've got buttons from all over the country, actually. We're the only, as far as I know, we're the only Holocaust Center in the country. There's one in Australia that's doing something like this. Uh, there was a um, charter school in, in um, um, I forget where they are, somewhere in Massachusetts that collected stamps uh, a few years ago. And there's one, there's a group in uh, collecting 
um, paper clips in Tennessee or Kentucky, but we're doing buttons, and we've gotten buttons from all kinds of people. Wonderful. All sizes, shapes. So it's really uh, something very concrete. People can contribute. So if any of you have buttons, please let me know. We'll be glad to pick them up, or you can drop them off at our at our office. Where our office is on the second floor of the library, the Learning Resource Center. Actually, if you go in inside the library in the uh, entryway, there's a big bottle, and people are dropping them there, or they can come up to the second floor, a two hundred and give them our buttons. Wonderful. Um, and I'll, I will I will also post um, the flyer uh, that you had sent me um, previously um, on the button drive, and I'll, I'll push that out, too, on social media. And and, uh, and then I'll, I'll also put, if, you know, if anyone, uh, I'm willing to drive the buttons over there, too, if people want to meet up. And uh, But I, I will put that on uh, the show's pages, too, to, to help out as well. Okay. Did, did I uh, send you a list of uh, our programs? Uh, not, not the okay. list. I, I got the button drive flyer. Okay, I will send you a list of our program, so you you know mention it to folks. That would be great. Wonderful, I will. And uh, so, the Holocaust Center is doing a lot of of uh, events, folks. So if you guys would like to get involved, again, um, what's the phone number again, Professor? They can call you at. Yeah, this is five zero eight three 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 seven nine four six. I have a college number too. Uh, but you can. This is my cell phone, so you can call my uh, cell phone that way, and then I'll be able to get back to you. Alrighty, yeah. so, sounds yeah. good. So again, uh, we're going to start. Uh, let's start the segment on discussing the Holocaust, and uh, and I had sent um, you know a couple topics that I'd like to talk about, and I think a, a good way to start uh, would be to discuss um, the 1930s and kind of Germany's situation after the uh, the First World War, and, and just just to kind of put our listeners in in perspective of what the 30s look like for both um, the Germans and the Jewish community because, you know, it was such a small population of the Jewish community actually in Germany. So uh, could you just elaborate on kind of the the the, the 30s and, and kind of what Germany and the Jewish community were looking at? Uh, before the Holocaust? Uh, yeah, so let's talk about the Germany situation after World War One, and then get into uh, kind of like the 30s and prior to the Holocaust. Sure. Well, by the way, I, I, just, I think I would mention too that, as I said, we try to deal with other Holocaust, other genocides, you know, with this uh, murder of uh, individuals because of a, a particular race or ethnic group. And we've had a conferences on uh, Native American genocide, and we had one on the uh, Cambodian genocide. Uh, we talked about also the Germans this past April. We did a conference on. Um, the murder of disabled people, because Nazis believed that disabled people didn't believe, didn't deserve to live. So we brought in, we had a conference on that. So I just wanted to mention that. Absolutely. Even though we do focus on the Holocaust related to Jews, um, we have dealt with other, and we plan to do further. We'll do something on Rwanda and Armenians, probably genocide, so down, down the road. But anyway, to get to your question, well, okay. Professor, let's do this because um, we we talked a little bit uh, earlier. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take a quick break, and then when we come back, okay. we'll, we'll so just so, just so I don't have to interrupt uh, the thought, sure. and we'll have more time. Yeah. So, uh, folks, we'll be right back again. We're with Professor Weisberger. We're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll get into the the Holocaust segment. Alrighty.
Disabled American veterans and recruit military are holding the Greater Boston Veterans Job Fair on Thursday, August 30th from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. This job fair is for veterans, transitioning military personnel, National Guard members, reserve members, and spouses. The job fair will have employment, continuing education, and business ownership opportunities. Representatives from over 80 employers, franchisers, and higher ed institutions will be present. You can register online for the job fair by visiting recruitmilitary.com slash Boston. You sit down at your table. You get your card. 25 squares hold the key. Which one will it be? I-25, O-72, or Lucky B-13? Which one will be the square that makes you jump up and shout, Bingo! The Attleboro Elks Lodge, 1014, hosts Bingo each Sunday at 887 South Main Street. Open to the public, the kitchen opens at 5 p.m. with a variety of food available. Bingo starts at 6 p.m. Prizes are awarded and proceeds support Elks Charities. For further details, you can visit attleboroelks.org or you can call 508-222-5502. Remember, Elks Care, Elks Share. Keyboard Cat, Hamilton the Pug, and Toast Meets World. These are some of the Internet's most beloved pets, and they all have one thing in common. Their stories started in a shelter. Start your story. Adopt a dog or cat today. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Training that pet to play the keyboard, that's optional. Start a story. Adopt a shelter or rescue pet today. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Alrighty, folks, we're back. Again, we're... Uh we're uh, talking about the Holocaust, and we have Professor Weisberger uh, from Bristol Community College as our guest today. Professor Weisberger, are you still there? Oh, yeah. All righty, wonderful. So uh, prior to uh, our break, we said we were going to put a little uh, put things in perspective for our listeners. Um, so if you could uh, just touch upon, uh, you know, prior to the Holocaust and kind of leading up to it, what the, the, the Germans and kind of what the Jewish communities um, were like. Um. Yeah, it's a very good question, and you you did indicate, which is in fact the case, that the um, Jewish population in Germany um, was very small. The population of Germany was roughly 70 million, 70 million, and there's no more than, little more than 500,000 Jews in Germany. So that's a fraction of the population, because I think people get confused. They say, you know, well, Holocaust, there must have been... You know, and then why, why pick on the, such a small population? There were Jews, uh, just like in the United States, which, by the way, in the United States, Jews are only 1% or less of the population, but there were some Jewish people who were prominent in some government. They were in journalism and other areas. Um, but they were a small population, and many of them had been in Germany for centuries, they had migrated from um, other areas. Um, we'll talk about, you know, the majority of, of the Jewish population that were eventually murdered, not in Germany. Not, they were in Germany. But anyway, the, the Jewish population was fairly uh, assimilated. Uh, many of the, uh, many Jews had fought with, on the Germ- with the Germans. I mean, they were German Jews, and they fought in World War One as Germans. Uh, there were Jewish rabbis that were, um, you know, there on the on the front, you know, were uh, just like there were priests and uh, ministers, and um, many uh, German 
Jews were uh, men you know, who fought in the war were proud of their dad. They had uh, gotten medals, you know, and they were proud of their, they supported Germany. Uh, Germany, of course, lost the war, and we'll get, maybe we'll get into that a little bit as one of the causes of, of what happened. But in any case, the point is that they were pretty well assimilated. Uh, many, there were Jews who didn't practice Judaism. One of the confusing things, I know for some folks, is that what does it mean to be Jewish? Um, because Jew, people who are Jewish may practice the religion of Judaism, um, but they're also kind of a, you might consider an ethnic group. But they're, just like in the United States, they were, they're Americans and American Jews, Italian Jews, you know, Irish Jews. So they were German Jews. Uh, and many, uh, without getting into the detail, um, the religion that was practiced of Judaism was uh, had started and continued with Reform Judaism, which was um, <coughs> um, which the the, um, the liturgy was in the in many some Hebrew, but a lot in German itself, and uh, it was not it was not as strict as they say the more Orthodox Jews would have practiced it, although there were some Orthodox Jews in Germany as well. So anyway, I guess under uh, the point is that the Jewish population up till the, the um, coming to power of the Nazi party in 1933 were uh, assimilated as Germans, and um, while there was a history, unfortunately, of anti-Semitism, um, in in Europe and in Germany, um, most Jews consider themselves good Germans, uh, but there were parties, Nazi Party being a prime example, that uh, attacked Jews as somehow being dangerous or not, not being real Germans, which came as a shock to many Germans, the German Jews, who felt like, well, we're Germans like anybody else. Absolutely, anyway. and, and, and you you mentioned a word, and uh, it's a unique word, and I'd like you to to just explain it briefly. Uh, the anti um, anti semitism. Could you just explain it for our viewers quickly, a little bit? Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> anti a lot of the uh, the background again. This is a large subject. The background to anti being anti Jewish uh, goes way back. To the early days of Christianity, and so a lot, of, and that continued through the you know through the Middle Ages, and then to the modern period, and it was what you might call anti-Judaism. In other words, Jews were seen as not Christians, and that somehow they were not accepted since they didn't accept Jesus as a savior. That somehow there was you know they had a problem with that, um, and they went, would want to convert Jews. You could convert to. Yeah, to, in Germany, the main, the prior, the two main uh, Christian religions were uh, Lutheran. Probably over half, maybe three quarters, of Germans are were Lutheran. Goes back to Martin Luther in the 1500s, or Catholic, about 20 to 25 percent Catholic. Um, and so, anyway, that was. But in the late, so that there was a, a religious, you know, aspect to this anti. Judaism, what we call anti-Judaism, somehow against Jews. But in the late 19th century, the development of intense nationalism 
they developed this idea that of um, that there are certain people who were superior to other people. There were the idea of race really became prominent, and this had to do with Africans as well as uh, others. And um, the idea of race doesn't really exist biologically. We're all pretty much the same. But they developed this idea of race, and that there was this kind of race called the Aryan race, which corresponded with Germans, or people connected to Germany, like the English. And that somehow they were superior. Um, and this had a lot to do with the changes in the Industrial Revolution and the industrialization of, in Western Europe and eventually the United States, um, exceeding other areas of the world. Um, and so this idea of race became uh, came to the fore, and it, it, was, it was actually uh, stimulated by uh, Darwin. Charles Darwin, who talked about biological evolution. So he had people who took what Darwin said in regard to biology, connected it to... Um, to social, in figure, you know, to, to social world. A guy named Herbert Spencer is one, and there are others who then talked about the fact that there is a competition among human uh, humans, and that had to do with race. And so race became prominent, written, you know, by uh, philosophers and sociologists and others, and this idea of the Aryan race being somehow superior. And um, and then Jews being viewed as a separate race, kind of nonsense, but that's the way it was being posited, and that the Jews were somehow a threat in some way or another to the Aryan race, or even to others, particularly the Aryan race. Um, and that, because, that eventually was picked up and became part of Nazi ideology. So, And, and that's known as anti-Semitism. So to distinguish between anti-Judaism, which is, you know, against Jews, Jewish religion, this is against Jews as a supposedly separate race, and a race that was seen as somehow a threat to other races, and particularly the Aryan race. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Does that, does that oh, go ahead. I mean, does that, that make sense? Oh, uh, absolutely. And yeah, um, I mean, the whole thing doesn't make sense, but that's... And that's, by the way, that's still out there, uh, I'm sure. You, you know, and it's interesting because I'll, I'll talk with, uh, you know, some of my classmates and, and friends, and we always talk about you know, that concept of race. And I say, you know, if, if everyone just believed in a human race, you, you know, it would uh, solve a lot of problems. And, you know, we're all human as opposed to kind of dividing everyone. But it, it's interesting that although the, the some of the Jewish community would identify as Germans, that the Nazi ideology kind of separated by the race of the Jewish. If this, does that make sense? I find that interesting. Yeah. And uh, we can get into that, but I mean, they, they had some trouble doing that. They had to figure this all out. Who is really Jewish? I mean, what if you only one one parent was Jewish? You know, does that make you Jewish? But you know, this this what was happening there in Europe and, and in Germany was, of course, happening in this country as well, and they had a lot to do was the period of imperialism where the, particularly England and France and to some extent Germany, once it became united. Germany didn't become united until 1870. Uh, Germany also had somewhat of an inferiority complex because England and France had gotten the jump on them. They had been united much earlier. Um, so um, they uh, there was this idea that um, 
that they had to get colonies. So this is a period like late 19th where England, France, and Germany sort of jumped in, and uh, Italy to some extent too, uh, took over Africa and part of, and, and part, good parts of Asia, making them into colonies. And, in order to, and these are people of color of some sort or another. So in order to justify it, uh, they're taking over. Uh, they had to create this ideology of saying somehow that they were superior and that other people were to be brought along, uh, but they would need to be, uh, you know, it would be a while. So meanwhile, they could be exploited. So this this period of late 19th, early 20th century uh, eventually leads to World War I because you have competition among the major industrial nations, right? Absolutely. But but basically, that idea... Of, um, to justify, and same thing in this country, where because we have slavery, right, early on, so that you have to justify slavery by saying that somehow African Africans or African Americans are inferior, and we have to somehow control them until they could reach some level, whenever that is. Absolutely, so, and uh, and I, I think it's interesting as well too that it wasn't just. Uh, the Jewish communities either. It was also the homosexuals. It was also, uh, you know, those of uh, mentally disabled. Um, and uh, to an extent, too, uh, the gypsies, uh, the gypsy population, too. Yeah. And th- these were all communities that were, you know, sometimes I feel like in, in school when we talk about the Holocaust, everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's the, the Jewish community, and everyone relates to that. But it was much more than that, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, we're, we get, we're doing this chronologically. Uh, once the um, the Germans, uh, once the Nazis come to power in 1933, uh, based partly on the, on this uh, idea, although there's a lot of other reasons why they were able to come to power, their ideology meant, as we said, that the Aryans were superior, and their idea of the superior race is some idea of a blonde, blue-eyed uh, person who is somehow perfectly healthy, and that other people were uh, who were to say, as you say, disabled, or other groups, Jews, of course, being the most prominent, but also the Roma or the Sitti, which are which are Italian, I'm Italian, which are um, the the gypsies, what we call gypsies, were also people that needed to be uh, dealt with as well, which eventually they were able to uh, uh, to do. Which we can get into that. Absolutely. Um, Already. The Holocaust is. is it up, but the German ideology was one of, you know, we, only the German, the Aryan race, uh, I mean, ironically, if you looked at Nazis, the leadership, very few, any of them, none of them, or very few of them, looked like anything they thought were superior, but that didn't make any sense anyway, right? Absolutely. Alrighty, folks. Well, we're on the air with uh, Professor Weisberger. We're discuss- We're having an entire segment tonight on uh, the Holocaust. Um, so, Professor Weisberger is uh, the director of the Holocaust Center, and uh, we're talking about the entire history of Holocaust from uh, chronologically, and, and we'll continue right after these messages. The National Diversity Graduate Fair will take place on October 13th from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Rhode Island College's Murray Center. Attendees can speak with graduate admissions representatives from local and national colleges and universities. They'll have the opportunity to learn more about admission requirements, application deadlines, financial aid opportunities, and more. The fair is free and open to those considering graduate school. Those wishing to attend the fair can register by visiting diversitycollegefairs.com. 
Com. Are you one of the 30 million Americans who skip breakfast every day? We don't need to remind you that skipping breakfast can have a detrimental effect on your health. The Breakfast Place, located at 187 Pleasant Street, across from the Shell gas station, has been serving their customers meals made to order for over 30 years using vegetables from local farms and cage-free eggs. Owner Casey Darconti opens the Breakfast Place every day from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. for breakfast and lunch. And for those on the go, all meals are available for takeout. Hamilton was adopted from a rescue in 2008. He really likes to be around people. I get out my mat and I'm doing a downward dog and he's underneath. He's quite the pug about town. He gets invited to a lot of parties. He knows he's a pretty big deal. Look at this little face. I mean, you know, I love him. Hamilton the pug, Instagram star and shelter pet. Amazing adoption stories start in shelters. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Alrighty, folks, we're back on the air. Uh, this is the Polo Salguero Show. We're with uh, Professor Weisberger. Okay. Professor Weisberger, are you still there? Yeah. Alrighty, wonderful. I'm just we just got back from our break. Um, again, oh, okay. I'd like to tell. Uh, all our listeners that we're with Professor Weisberger. We're just doing an entire segment on the Holocaust. Professor Weisberger is the director of the, the Holocaust Center at Bristol Community College. He's also a professor there. Uh, so, Professor, uh, again, we, I'd like to put everything in, in chronological order. Uh, so let's start with, um, let's go uh, January 1933, right? That's when Hitler uh, becomes the chancellor of, of Germany, correct? That's correct. All Now, let's, what was... Uh, because I, I think it's interesting. I think it's important to know um, every side of of this topic. And so let's. Could you talk a little bit about you know we talked about the Aryan race and stuff like that. But what was what was ultimately Hitler's mission? What was his goal? Uh, well, that's a, actually a very good question. Um, his um, his mission and the uh, again yeah, yeah it's important to always when we talk about the Holocaust, that the Nazi, that Hitler was the leader of the, the Fuhrer, to terminate the leader of the, of the um, Nazi party that came to power. So he's obviously an important person, but it took many thousands of people to do what we're going to be talking about, and the Nazi party had its own apparatus. Uh, but so the goal of the Nazi party basically was to create what they thought, what they felt would be a, um, they called it a thousand, to control, basically take over Europe, and maybe the world eventually, um, to expand uh, the German um, empire, uh, as we'll see once the war broke out, you know, both to the east and to the west, and to um, eventually um, have the, this Aryan race, basically Germans and those similar to be the rulers. I mean, think about this, it's crazy. And that other people would be either enslaved, working for them, especially people who they considered inferior, for example, Poles or Slavic people, Russians, um, and, um, or for the Jewish population, which they eventually saw as a, based on it, as a real threat, to uh, either be, at least initially, got rid of uh, one way or the other. Eventually, even though it's not clear that from the very beginning they were going to murder them, there some some talk about putting them on an island somewhere, you know, uh, like Madagascar or 
somewhere else, Siberia, once they conquer, if they conquered Russia or something, but eventually we'll see they end up uh, murdering them. Um, so that was the goal, to cre- create this German empire uh, where the, the Germans are the rulers of the world, exploiting the world, uh, expanding. Because Germany, not a huge country, so the idea of what they call a race in space, to create the race, the superior race to be the ruler and to expand into space so that the Germans would colonize areas um, beyond the borders of Germany, which eventually would have to be through conquest. So essentially, essentially it was uh, to take over the land and ultimately try to take over the world with only his own race? Yeah. Or, or what he viewed the as the superior race. The rulers of the, of, of the world um, over other peoples, other pe- people who they consider um, inferior, either to get rid of them by murdering them or to exploit them as some sort of slave labor, which is what they did, at least for the short, relatively short period that they could control the territories that they eventually conquered. Now, as as we get into uh, more, did it you know prior to uh, concentration camps and whatnot? Were there uh, like the were there similar uh, laws like the Jim Crow laws against uh, Jewish uh, the Jewish community? Yeah, well, that, that's a, I'm glad you mentioned Jim Crow because sadly, the model that they used was a model that, uh, to some extent, that has been used in this country. Uh, so sometimes. You know, we the Americans, we like to see ourselves as somehow being superior in our actions, but I mean, as a whole. But uh, sadly, you know, our, our the history of this country uh, has a number of negatives, and one of them was treatment of African Americans, and also the treatment of Native Americans. And Hitler was well aware of that. He used that. You know, he said, "Look, look what the Americans did. They were able to get rid of the Native Americans. Uh, pretty much, you know, either put them in." in reservation to murder them, and they made slaves out of African Americans or kept them in an inferior position after the Civil War, you know, through, as you said, the Jim Crow laws. Um, so when they, when Hitler came to power in 1930, and by the way, uh, he came to power, um, he was never elected uh, purely. There was, I mean, get into the weeds here, but there there was a remember um, coming out of World War One, Germany had been somewhat weakened by the war, you know, and uh, left them not in great shape economically, although they did by the end of the twenties they were doing better until the depression hit. And then once the depression hit they were so they were suffering economically and also which gave the Nazis the chance to come to power. Because earlier in the twenties they were just sort of a minor power, you know, like some of the people we see in Charlottesville, right? Absolutely. Watching the torches. But they, because of that, that, um, of the depression, and also some res- resentment of, as to how they were treated at the end of World War One, provided the Nazis with enough uh, support. Uh, but they never got a majority of people. Uh, this may sound familiar, but they never had more than 30-some percent of the population who voted for them. Uh, but the problem was in the Reichstag, in the parliament, there were many different parties. And then because of the economic situation, the Nazis were able to get enough uh, plurality of voters 
to support them, and um, the other parties could not get together. There was a Social Democratic Party, there was a Christian Democratic other parties, they were competing, and um, they couldn't get a, a good government to last very long, and some of the uh, top uh, generals and uh, some of the other politicians thought, all right, well, we'll put this guy in as chancellor. This is after the election in 1933. We can control him and then uh, some bring about some stability. Uh, so he ended up becoming chancellor, he said, uh, in 1933, because he was put there, because his party had a good percentage of vote of people in the Reichstag, but they didn't have the majority by any means. Yep, and, and for our listeners, uh, a chancellor is different from essentially a president, correct? Uh, yeah, that, um, that's a good point. Uh, chancellor is like prime minister. <clears throat> the, the party, in, in a parliamentary system, the party that has the most delegates, uh, or it can put together, uh, that often has that, they don't have, if you don't have a majority, you can put together you know, enough to control a majority, then your leader becomes the prime minister, or they call them the chancellor. There was a president in uh, in Germany who had was somewhat ceremonial, had some power, and the president was an uh, old general von Hindenburg who didn't like Hitler at all. He thought Hitler was just nobody. You know, von Hindenburg was from the aristocracy, but uh, he sort of got convinced to allow him to come to power. Um, but once the Nazis came to power, they were able to manipulate the situation. Uh, for one thing, there was a in the uh, the government that existed before they came to power called the Weimar Republic. It was founded after World War One, when the uh, Kaiser, the, you know, the emperor was thrown out, and they formed a kind of parliamentary democratic system. They had a parliament before, but the, the emperor, the Kaiser, had a fair amount of power. <laughs> so the, the Weimar Republic. The problem with the Weimar Republic was. They had to accept the defeat. Uh, even though the German army was defeated, basically, it was an armistice. It wasn't like World War II. They were never invaded. And so people who resented that, like the Nazis, they could say, oh, we were stabbed in the back. You know, we really never lost. It was other people, Jews being an example, or communists, others. They're the ones who made us lose the war. Yeah. Uh, Hitler, by the way, was a corporal during World War One. Yep. And... Before that time, he had been sort of a wanderer. He, was, he thought of himself as an artist. He wasn't very good. And he found himself in the Army uh, during World War One. He was a runner. He even got an award, you know, a medal. And then after the war, he ended up becoming the, uh, joining this small party, the, uh, what's the Nazi Party, National Socialist Workers Party. And he had a certain level of charisma. He was an orator. And he was able to turn that small party into a larger party with the support of certain factions within Germany. So it's You can read a lot of biographies of how he ended up being what he, you know, you would never, no one would have predicted that he would have, uh, as someone like him, you know, like in 1919, 20 even, uh, would have become the, you know, chancellor and then eventually the Fuhrer of uh, Germany. Absolutely. I think it's uh, 
I think that concept's even relevant now. Some people wonder how some people get into the the power position that they're in. Um, yeah. <laughs> but a uh, but I'd like to talk a little bit about because we, we, we kind of uh, continued off of it. But uh, the comparison between the Jim Crow laws and then essentially, as it related to the Jewish community, uh, would you say the the new? And I'm correct me if I'm wrong because I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. But the Nuremberg uh, race laws is that was that essentially kind of similar to the Jim Crow laws? Yeah, no, yeah, I, I sort of got off one when you asked me that question. There's always so much material. Um, yeah, when when the Nazis did come to power, uh, when he became chancellor, in the beginning, for the first year or so, he had to really find his way because, you know, he he didn't become the Fuhrer right, right off the bat. But they were able to, one of the things they did is they started a fire in the Reichstag, and there was something within, in the Constitution of the Weimar Republic, which said that they could have emergency power under, for a short period of time under an emergency. So when they started this fire, uh, Hitler went to von Hindenburg and got permission to create a, um, and, and the rule as an emergency for a short period of time, but he just ran with it and they arrested. Uh, like, for example, the Communist Party in Germany was very pretty strong. They, you know, they had probably 25% of the vote, but they got really thrown and other... So they... Their leaders got arrested. The first concentration camp uh, was a Dachau, and it was used for political prisoners outside of Munich. So, um, so in the beginning, um, once he was able to get rid of his opposition, so within the first year, by the end of the year, he has become a major leader. And then when von Hindenburg died a year later, he made himself the Fuhrer got rid of the Constitution and pretty much ran as a, a one-party thing. And so from the very beginning, they began to push the, the Jewish population. It was part of their thing. But um, And they tried to um, push uh, Jews who were involved in government or in other things out. Uh, but it was they worked a little bit, not real slowly, but somewhat slowly. So by 1935... About two years later, it's then when they passed the Nuremberg Laws that you were saying, where basically Jews were, as the population was segregated, um, and uh, they weren't allowed to be in government, and they weren't allowed, um, they had separate, you know, it's like uh, they couldn't go to parks at a certain time, they had curfews. They were making, basically the idea was to try to get rid of the Jews. It wasn't clear. Yeah, and, they they I also weren't I able. To, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say uh, they weren't uh, they weren't uh, able to uh, obtain citizenship or even marry um, uh, German related uh, individuals. Right. Is that correct? That was part of the Nuremberg laws, right? Many, I mean, German Jews who could got about half the population by 1936 had left, but it wasn't easy to emigrate. For example, in this country, we had very strict immigration laws. Of immigration sounds familiar again, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. uh, so, um, but many of them did flee. Some of them into Europe. That eventually got caught up. You know, like the Frank family. Uh, that eventually was in Holland, and then you know they got caught. But um, still, many Germans were still in. So those German Jews who were still in Germany were uh, eventually, through the Nuremberg Laws, segregated. And you're right; you couldn't marry a non-Jew. And uh, you couldn't have maid, non, you know, maids, 
and that you were not allowed, you know. Um, eventually, you couldn't do a doctor. You could only serve Jews. You couldn't serve there was a fair amount of disproportionate to their population. There were a lot of Jewish professionals. So lawyers and doctors who had been, you know, working with Germans and Jews and non-Germans now were pretty much segregated. So life got more and more difficult for the German Jews in Germany uh, as the decade proceeded. And the Nuremberg laws were, you know, a major step in that direction. And, and so ultimately the goal of those laws were essentially to segregate and kind of push certain policies and, and try to encourage the Jews to actually leave Germany? Right. Um, and, um, and they, you know, they, at first, they went a little bit slowly because they wanted to see how the German population was going to react. Uh, and um, unfortunately, even though there were German non-Jews who probably didn't like it, they didn't push back. Um, they didn't object in any way that could keep, you know, Nazis... Yeah. In the beginning, actually, the first year, they tried to have, they had this group called the SA and the SS to keep people from shopping in Jewish shops. They had people outside, you can see pictures. But the population, by and large, didn't accept that very well. You know, here's a guy, you went to a Jewish store, you liked them, you know, and they, they treated you well, they gave you credit or whatever, so what, what's the problem? So they, the Nazis backed off somewhat, and so they moved a little slowly, but by 36, they had consolidated their power, and they could then begin to institute uh, these anti-Jewish laws. Yeah, and they have, it's interesting, because I have a question, too, because they have, you see them come to power, and that is the Nazis. Now, what was the the actual uh, German community... What was their consensus? Were they like, were they on board right away, or were, was it like, how did the community actually react to, uh, you, you know, what the Nazis were preaching to them? Um, yeah, that's a very good question. One of the things that when we talk, I teach, I co-teach a course on the Holocaust. I've done it for fifteen years, and uh, at ECC, the honors course, we talk about perpetrators, victims, and uh, bystanders. Three categories. Also, rescuer is another category. And so the, the German population, by and large, was what we would call bystanders, uh, which means they observed what was going on, but they didn't, even though there, was small, there were examples, individual examples, where there was maybe some pushback, as a whole, they didn't push back. And sadly, the, the churches, this is where, you know, which had uh, obviously a certain amount of influence, Lutheran churches or the Catholic Church did not push back, and some of them even participated. And uh, so, by and large, either they went along with it, and some actively, or they just turned the other, you know, turned the other way and pretend it wasn't happening. Gotcha. Uh, again, on the individual basis, you could find people who did support their Jewish neighbors or whatever, but as a whole, they didn't do it. Gotcha. And, um, Already, folks, we're, we're uh, yep, and uh, we're going to take a quick break. But again, folks, okay. we're with uh, Professor Weisberger, who is the director of the Holocaust Center, and uh, also professor at uh, Bristol Community College. And we're doing an entire segment on uh, the Holocaust, kind of putting everything in chronological order, uh, trying to get you know the goal is to essentially have our listeners have learned something um, after listening to our show. That's the the goal of it. But uh, we'll be right back after these uh, these quick messages. 
You're listening to WARA, 1320 AM, Attleboro. Welcome to the WECS Daily News. Attleboro is getting ready to put on its 2018 Expo for the Senses, which will be held this Saturday from noon to 5 p.m. along Riverfront Drive. One of the organizers, Mim Fawcett, shared what's new at the event in the new location. I'm happy to share some information about Attleboro's 10th Expo for the Senses. Uh, this is a program that happens annually. It's very much a community program, but it is run by the city of Attleboro and um, headed up by the mayor. The Expo and the Winter Night Festival were originally uh, launched by Mayor Dumas, and Mayor Hiro has taken on and continued it. The team members, myself, Diane Falk, Jim Jones, and Nancy Young, uh, represent different aspects of the Expo for the Senses. But we all come together to produce this 12 to 5 event in the summer. And what we have spotlighted this year uh, should be very exciting. At the center of all of it, folks will find on the hot August 18th day, uh, two slides, two water slides for adults and teens, adolescents. And then for little kids, we have a Nemo slide. So all ages can cool off and have a great ride right in the middle of the expo. From a visual standpoint, you will find beautiful crafts created by artisans and crafters from all over Massachusetts and Rhode Island. There are 21 vendors that are represented and they all have created original handmade items. It could be ceramic, it could be um, watercolor, um, two-dimensional work, could be oil paintings. The range is, is very vast and uh, we encourage everyone to come down and although the expo admission is free, our vendors um, do collect for their wares and all proceeds go to the vendors. In the middle of the craft fair, you'll find face painting by Art on the Spot, and you'll also find caricatures by Adam Cristaldi and Emma Rickert. They're a lot of fun and they really are a nice keepsake from the event. Our sand sculptor, Steve Tapazio from Santasia, is back and he's creating a very fun large scale sand sculpture. And we also have 1031 from Providence, most famous for their gargoyles at Waterfire, coming and they will have a live performance at the event as well. The museum puts together some very interesting crafts, kids' crafts, and that's free for all of our young budding artists to participate in. And then uh, um, a wonderful focus from the museum is our chalk masterpiece, sidewalk masterpiece effort. The focus this year is on portraits. Guests too or attendees of the expo can come and cast their vote for their most favorite one. The um, winner will be crowned the Duke or Duchess of Chalk and we always love that. Further down on the expo grounds will be Attleboro Jewelers' uh, sponsorship of the jewelry makers and manufacturers. And then you will have local restaurants that will be on board. We also have live music and um, a music tent for folks to have a little bit of shade and to enjoy live music from the Blue FOs. The event this year is in a new location. 
And this is a special location that is dedicated to former Mayor Judy Robbins. It's the Judith H. Robbins Waterfront Park. And the way that folks can get to this location is just coming off 123 off County Street and then on to Wall Street and then heading right to the park. This location is right across from the commuter line station. So we want everyone to be clear uh, on how to get there. There's free parking right next door, part of the commuter lot, and then also other properties will be available for parking that's adjacent to the expo grounds. So I hope everyone does come, put on some sunscreen, get some bug spray, bring a towel if you're planning to go on the water slide and uh, come and have some fun with us on August 18th. That's Saturday from 12 to 5. That's all for today's update. You can watch all of our content by visiting our website, AACS.com, by downloading the AACS mobile app, or by visiting the AACS Roku channel. For AACS News, I'm Austin Ricketts. Sixteen days and counting with this high and sometimes oppressive humidity. Today it was high humidity. Gee, what a break, huh? Falling down to about 70 by sunrise. Nice vision of Venus and the crescent moon once again in the west-southwest sky this evening. Sunshine, hot and humid tomorrow. Upper 80s to near 90 with a southwest breeze. Only falling to 72, 73 by Friday morning. Hazy, breezy. Very warm and humid on Friday with late day and evening showers and thunderstorms. Some of those could be on the strong side. And the showers could linger into Saturday morning at least. Temperatures in the 70s Saturday cooling off late in the day as winds turn northeast. And right now, it looks like sort of a filtered sun, a northeast breeze, and a cool day on Sunday. But dry highs of around 70. For 1320 AM, I'm Jim Corbin. As always, I'll see you in the morning with Dom Katoya. Alrighty, folks, we're back live. This, we're back live. This is the Paul Salguero Show. We're live with uh, Professor uh, Weisberger from Bristol Community College. Professor, are you still there? Oh, yes. Alrighty. So we, we, we discussed uh, some of the, the Nuremberg uh, uh, laws and uh, the, as it's kind of related to uh, the Jim Crow laws. Now, a thing I, I'd like to talk about, and because one, it kind of annoys me when I hear this word because people always misuse it, and that is uh, the word ghetto. Uh, I don't know if you if you experience it, but I've heard people always say, "Oh, that's ghetto. This is this. This is that." And w without them actually knowing uh, what a ghetto is or was, could you talk a little bit about what what the ghettos were? Sure. Well, again, speaking chronologically, very quickly, I guess <laughs> historian, you know, history teachers do that. You know, we mentioned the Nuremberg Laws in 1936, right? Um, in 1938, there was something called Kristallnacht. Um, have you heard about that? I have not, no. It's called the Night of the Broken Glass. This is, this is where I mentioned that the German Jews were increasingly uh, marginalized. And in 1938, on this pre one pretense or another, uh, the uh, Nazis engineered the, the um, burning of uh, thousands of Jewish businesses and also synagogues. Uh, which made it clear that uh, the Jewish population was really in peril. Many uh, men were, were arrested, women were raped. I mean, it was a, a two-day, um, what people call pogrom, in which uh, 
the Jewish population was subjected to a real terror. Um, and that was also the period when Germany began to expand. Um, so first of all, they took over um, an area in, um, they took over Austria, called the Anschluss, which they weren't supposed to do under the um, Versailles Treaty. And they united, and then that brought, members that brought more German, more Jews under their control. Austria had a, uh, it's still a minority, but still a large Jewish population. And then they took over Czechoslovakia. Uh, and at that point, the, the Italians, I'm sorry, along with the Italians who were allies under Mussolini, they took over um, Czechoslovakia, uh, bringing, of course, more Jews under their control. And uh, Britain and France, which at that time was were obviously were quite alarmed by what was going on. They were trying to revive at a uh, settlement without going to war. And uh, that's when they allowed them eventually to take over Czechoslovakia. Then in 1939, they attacked Poland. Uh, and that really started World War Two, Because up to that time, the, Germ- the Nazis would say, well, there were Germans that are being oppressed in Austria. That, you know, they needed to be part of the, the Reich. That's called the German Reich or the German Empire. Uh, same thing as part of Czechoslovakia, but Poland a whole different uh, story, and England and France had an alliance with Poland. Poland was a country created after World War One, uh, which had been part of uh, German or Russia, Austria-Hungary. I mean, I won't go into all that, you know, the, the whole thing was the first century. But anyway, once they attacked Poland, this is when the Holocaust began. That gets me into the question of ghettos, because probably close to 25% of the population of Poland was Jewish. That means there are, you know, a number, a couple million Jews in Poland. So uh, <clears throat> the Germans saw the Poles as being inferior anyway. So they were kind of Slavic people. But then they inherited these millions of Jews, and that led them to what became known as the Holocaust. But the first stage of that was to round up the Jews and that, under their control. And between 1939 and 1941, they had an alliance with Russia, even though Russia was seen as a big uh, enemy of, of Germany initially. Communists were, uh, they had all part of their ideology, but they made this pact with Stalin. And so part of Poland was controlled, taken over by Russia, but the rest of Poland was taken over by uh, Germany, and uh, the Jews who were under their control were then, the first stage was to put it into ghettos. So the ghetto was that they were rounded up, the German, the Jewish population, and put into a small part of uh, either the city or the town, mostly like in the cities like Warsaw and Krakow and other cities. They were put into these uh, and walled off, basically, lost another ghetto. So they were, the ghettos were areas that Jews were only allowed to live, even if they were in other parts of the city or whatever, they were put in, set put into these areas, into apartments, you know, crowded apartments. And the idea was that they were going to control them, uh, um, and, uh, but, it's, and again, it's a little debatable whether by 1940, this is 1939-40, they had 
decided that they were going to murder them, but they didn't consider them worthwhile, and you know they were going to starve them and uh, disease and make his life as difficult as possible by forcing them to live a huge, you know, large population in a relatively small area that eventually was walled off from the rest of the city or even in small towns. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. And how did the... Um, actually, you know what? We're going to take a quick break because I went a little bit uh, past the first one. But when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, how the German uh, community, how the how they actually identified uh, the Jewish population and how they actually targeted it. But we're going to take a really quick break because I went a little bit past the first one, and then we'll be right back. Alrighty, folks, we'll be right back with Professor Weisberger at the Paul Salguero Show. Families are invited to enjoy a free morning with a variety of baby animals at Tristan Medical on Washington Street in North Attleboro on Saturday, August 25th from 10 till noon. There will be two baby goats, a baby piglet, chicks, ducklings, baby bunnies, and a lamb. Children of all ages can pet and feed the animals alongside Tristan Medical staff and physicians. Light refreshments will be served. Mental health, just like physical health, is an important part of every person's overall well-being. Learn about the many issues surrounding mental health by listening to our new show, Exploring Mental Illness. Everything you wanted to know but were too afraid to ask on Mondays at 6 p.m. on WARA 1320 AM. You can also listen for free by subscribing to the Exploring Mental Illness podcast on the iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn platforms. Find out more information by going to W. ARARadio.com and clicking on podcasts. Keyboard Cat, Hamilton the Pug, and Toast Meets World. These are some of the internet's most beloved pets. And they all have one thing in common. Their stories started in a shelter. Start your story. Adopt a dog or cat today. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Training that pet to play the keyboard, that's optional. Start a story. Adopt a shelter or rescue pet today. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. With the beautiful summer weather here, outdoor activities invite many annoying bugs and pests. This week on AACS, watch Mosquito Control and become familiar with the various ways to combat and understand this unpopular insect. You can watch this program and all of our quality programs from around the area in high definition on the AACS mobile app. Alrighty, folks, we're back live with uh, Professor uh, Weisberger. Professor Weisberger, you still there? Yes. Alrighty, so well, this is the Paul Salguero Show, where we uh, the goal is to educate our community. And um, we left off uh, previously to this break uh, talking about the ghettos and how that was really a way to rally up uh, the Jewish community. But my question was, how did the how did the German how did the Germans really target? Uh, the Jewish population. How did they go? Actually, go about saying, "All right, we're going to," you know. How did it all come about? Um, yeah, again, very, very good question. Um, basically, they a number of ways. They they would go in in Europe. I mean, in Poland, for example. Uh, although there were Jews who were, I mean, there were a large population. They tended to be separate, live in separate uh, parts of town, maybe or cheek by cheek, but they had, their communities were somewhat separate, and they could be identified, you know, either because they belonged to synagogues, or they had records, you know. Uh, and also, in, in Poland, a good part of the German, German population, the Jewish population spoke, even though they could speak Polish, they also spoke Yiddish, which was, because a lot, um, back in about two, two, three, four hundred years ago, years earlier, the Jews had migrated from Europe, from Western Europe, to Poland. In fact, they were invited by Poles 
and they brought, that's what Yiddish is, a combination of old Middle German and Hebrew and Slavic, and they had developed their own culture and their own language. So in, in, in Poland and other parts of Eastern Europe, the Jews were identified, identified by the fact that they had a separate, you know, they basically had separate communities, separate language, even though they interacted with people. And, um, and it was in, there was intermarriage and whatever to some extent. But they were, and plus they would go and they would have records. And they would also ask, you know, to identify who were the Jews in your community. So um, it was fairly easy to isolate the Jewish population based on their, you know, where they lived, with their language, um, uh, their, you know, religion. Uh, and even some, I mean, some people could identify Jews a little bit by how they may look, but of course Jews looked different, you know, they didn't all look the same by any means. Yeah, and now, these ghettos, was that the place where from there they went to uh, the concentration camps? Or could you could you tell us what the process was and uh, basically chronologically get us up to uh, the concentration camps in the beginning of that? Right. Yeah, uh, so one, once the, um, the a decision was made by probably 1941 uh, to basically annihilate the Jewish population in 1942, there was actually a, uh, um, a meeting called the Va- at, outside of Berlin called the Vonnesey Conference, where the final decision, uh, the, uh, what they called the, the Nazis would use this you know, language, the final solution was arrived at. However, by that time, many Jews had already been murdered. Um, I mentioned the fact that up, up till 1941, uh, Germany was allied with Ge- Russia. But in 1941, in um, the summer of 41, the Nazis attacked Russia, uh, which brought Russia into the war on the side of... France had already been defeated in 1940, but on the side of Russia. I mean, I'm sorry, on the, on the side of um, England, which is sort of holding out. Remember, the United States was neutral during this period. The United States didn't get involved until... Uh, Pearl Harbor, the end of 42, the end of 41. Um, and Germany uh, actually uh, went to war, declared war on the United States before the United States declared war on Germany once the United States had gone to war with Japan. So Germany had an alliance with Japan and Italy. So they became the Axis versus the Allies. But anyway, uh, so once they um, attacked Russia, they sent in these, they they already had set up ghettos, especially in Poland. Um, They they decided then to set up these concentration camps. In the beginning, though, um, when they invaded Russia, they sent in these groups called Eisengruppen. These were mobile killings, and they would round up Jews in the towns, in the area, and they would basically murder them, you know, just by shooting them. But that became... At the Vonnesey Conference, this is in '42, they felt that this was uh, wasting bullets, and it was also somewhat difficult. I mean, we can talk about how these people could kill. Because we're talking about killing women, children, men all together. But they decided to do it more efficiently. So that's when they began to either create these killing camps, concentration camps, or 
try to turn other camps that were already existent as labor camps into killing camps. And there were those labor camps because they were using the population, not just Jews, but others, as slave labor, uh, but also part of these camps. And there was many of them, but the most famous were like uh, Treblinka, Sorovo, um, uh, Auschwitz is probably the most famous, and others, where <clears throat> the Jews then who were in these ghettos were being then transported to these camps, uh, to these concentration camps, where a good percentage of them were murdered by um, gas chamber. They had decided that this was the most efficient way of killing by uh, putting them into, uh, you know, as soon as they got to the camps, they would be transported on cattle cars, mostly. And then when they got out, they would be, a group of sides would be sent to supposedly take a shower. But they were uh, basically, uh, you know, um, gas chambers. Now, and then, but the others, a smaller percentage would be then sent to, to a labor camp, you know, to, the, to be working until they could be eventually killed or worked to death. Now, did, 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 did the German, uh, did the Germans know exactly what what they were doing to the, the Jewish community? Meaning, did the you know the the residents of Germany actually know what was going on, or was that kind of I don't know swept under the rug? Or again, how much did the public of Germany actually know? Well, what do you think? Do you alter? Do you think something like that could have been kept from them? Well, me personally, you know, I, I don't think so, but, I, you know, I just wanted to bring that question out just, just for no, our, our, our listeners. Very good question, uh, people. Because, again, you know, I talked about bystanders, never perpetrators. First of all, it took thousands of people to do all this. We had a group called the DSS, which were the elite group. They were the ones running the concentration camps. But the Eisen group, for example, who, who were doing the shooting, these were, uh, there's a great book called Ordinary Men, by Christopher Browning talks about who these people were. These were people recruited, you know, some of them who weren't capable of being in the Army or even in the SS, and they were recruited to uh, to do this work. So it took, and there were thousands of people who uh, were involved in these camps, and um, so they had relatives at home, right? Um, and a lot of the, um, the things that were taken from the Jews were murdered, were sent back to Germany, you know, coats and other kinds of things. But where do they think these things came from? Yeah. So, yeah, there are probably people who weren't totally aware of it, and they weren't advertising it per se, but it's very difficult to believe, and there's plenty of evidence to indicate that a good percentage of German population sort of knew what was going on, but chose or felt that they couldn't do anything about it. And, yeah. in fact, in the beginning, they were benefiting from it. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, advertising too. Was was it at that time were the Germans using any propaganda or any sorts of uh, ways to communicate? You know, propaganda just against the Jewish population. Yeah, that's a very good. There's a we did a whole conference. Uh, actually, the uh, Holocaust Museum, the you that visited, we have a relationship with them, and they. Uh, I was there actually for a week. Uh, kind of as a seminar, and then uh, as part of that, afterwards, they sent somebody who did a whole workshop for teachers, a whole day workshop, and the focus was on propaganda. They have a really good book 
uh, on German propaganda. So, yeah, although even before the, the Holocaust began, in order to convince or try to convince the population, they used all kinds of, you know, um, posters and uh, newspaper, you know, articles and uh, that type of thing to denigrate the Jewish population. Um, so, lots of examples of. There was a particular newspaper called Der Sturmer that was uh, particularly virulent, and they were allied with the Nazi Party, and they would um, produce this paper. So it was a weekly paper and all kinds of anti-Jewish population. And not only was it distributed, but they would put them up like as posters so people could read them. So the question is, what percentage of the population believed all this, and what percentage didn't or you know, um, turned the other way or whatever. Absolutely. But, yeah, propaganda was, uh, um, Goebbels um, was the propaganda minister of the Nazi party. And uh, he produced, he produced a lot of that. No, already. All right, folks, we're live with uh, Professor Weisberger, uh, who is the director of the Holocaust Center at Bristol Community College, as well as a professor. Uh, we're discussing the Holocaust uh, chronologically. Uh, we're at the, we just kind of segued from ghettos into concentration camps, and uh, we're going to continue on to uh, essentially the end of the Holocaust and, and where we are today and what, what kind of what efforts are being made. Uh, but uh, right now, we're going to take a quick short, uh, uh, short break, and then we'll be right back. Disabled American veterans and recruit military are holding the Greater Boston Veterans Job Fair on Thursday, August 30th from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. This job fair is for veterans, transitioning military personnel, National Guard members, reserve members, and spouses. The job fair will have employment, continuing education, and business ownership opportunities. Representatives from over 80 employers, franchisers, and higher ed institutions will be present. You can register online for the job fair by visiting recruitmilitary.com slash Boston. Today we decided to walk to school. At the corner, we waited to cross the street. The stoplight counted down. 15, 14, 31, I mean 13. We took a left on Carroll Garden Street. Loud music was coming from a car. Danny's a smart kid, but he gets so distracted. There were so many other sounds, I didn't know what to focus on. Danny, earth to Danny. Suddenly he realized he forgot his homework again. I left my homework on the table. At the, the school, school steps, steps we, we hugged goodbye. goodbye. I, I really, really hope he doesn't have another, another bad day at school today. When you can see learning and attention issues from their side, you can be on their side. That's why there's understood.org, a free online resource for the parents of the one in five kids with learning and attention issues. Get personalized recommendations, practical tips, daily access to experts, and more. Go from misunderstanding to understood.org. Brought to you by Understood and the Ad Council. Amigo Inc. is currently looking for qualified individuals to help fill various positions within the company. Located at 33 Perry Avenue, Amigo is offering full and part-time positions in addition to per diem opportunities. Amigo offers first, second, and third shift availability to help fit your needs and theirs. When you join Amigo, you will help to create a positive client experience for all the individuals we have the privilege of serving on a daily basis. For more information on all positions available, please call 508-455-6200 or visit our website at amigoinc.org. 
Alrighty, folks, we're back live. This is the Paul Salguero Show. We're with uh, Professor Weisberger, who is the director of the Holocaust Center at Bristol Community College, as well as a professor. Professor, are you still there? Oh, yes. Alrighty, wonderful. So we're talking about, we're doing an entire segment on the Holocaust, and we're at... Uh, uh, we're at the concentration camp, basically, in terms of our conversation. And one thing I'd like to, to mention, too, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the word holocaust, is that the Greek uh, word for sacrifice by fire? Yes, that's a very good uh, point, uh, Paula. Uh, we, in our course, and uh, we use the term Shoah, because holocaust it means a sacrifice. As you say, it's from the Greek. And somehow the holocaust got to be named that. It's not really appropriate, you know. Was the Holocaust some sort of sacrifice? Who, who was being sacrificed? Yeah. So Shoah is a Hebrew word, which means catastrophe. Ah, Shoah. S H O A H, Shoah. So we try to use that in our course, and you can see that in the literature, but the Holocaust sort of stuck. So people, you know, for the most part, we still use it's still used, you know, like the uh, American, uh, like the Holocaust Memorial Museum, for example. Yep. But some people feel that it's not really appropriate given, you know, its definition. Absolutely. You know, and we're at the, um, again, I, I think this is uh, kind of like a depressing and tough topic, but I also think it's important to learn about it. And um, c could you t talk a little bit about what the actual process was like for, uh, you know, a Jewish individual they, they, you know, they're jam-packed on these trains and they're going to the concentration camp. What was, what was, what were they going through once they got to these camps? Um, well, you can imagine, uh, first of all, as we, you know, talked earlier, they, most of the population had already been in ghettos, right? Meaning that they were living under semi-starvation conditions, uh, under great fear, because they were being, they couldn't, they could only live in certain areas and the food was, was uh, um, you know, there wasn't a, a lot of food available. The Jew, in the ghettos, they, the Jewish population tried to do the best they could. Uh, in fact, they sent, the, the Germans sent out, established uh, something called Judenrat, a, German, a Jewish councils to rule over the ghetto, which they, which the Nazis, of course, controlled. But they were working through uh, Jews that they had appointed. And a lot of these People running to get, they were trying, for the most part, trying to do the best they could uh, under very difficult circumstances. Some of them were criticized for having collaborated, although many uh, they also felt that they could, uh, they could try to at least do what they could to keep life going. Um, and so it varied between one ghetto and another. But anyway, they were already under really stressful, and then they were rounded up. Um, beginning really in 41, 42, 43, and then put in these cattle cars, for a which took a couple of days, depending on where they were coming from. Uh, some of them were coming also from Western Europe, from France, which I've been told, or, or uh, Holland, uh, other areas. And um, so when they, and many, and a number of them, people would have died, because they had no water uh, in, uh, in these, you know, in these cattle cars and food. So people would already have died. You could just, you know, try to even imagine what life was like in those cars. And then when they got to the camp, the doors would open, and then they were already, the SS was there with dogs and whips and moving people. And we, we've heard survivors talk 
about what that was like. Those who managed to survive to tell us exactly what that was like. Um, the uh, Steven Spielberg helped to sponsor something called the Shoah Foundation, which has interviewed literally thousands of, of um, survivors over the years, many of whom have already passed. But we now have their their testimony, uh, you know, uh, on tape um, that, that we can hear and see. Anyway, so they talk about what that was like. And as I mentioned earlier, a good percentage was, you, you know, women, children, and older men or whatever would be sent to uh, one direction. Um, stronger women or others would send the other direction, and men who could labor would send to the other direction where they would then be put in, <clears throat> in barracks, you know, to be uh, used as slave labor. And, and to put it in perspective, too, it was also uh, children as well, right? Children, men, women. It was. It wasn't just a you know a select group. Children were also involved in this, correct? Well, yeah, that's why yeah, I mentioned the Bundy campaign. One point five million children were murdered this way. Little children, young, they were sent right to the gas chambers. And again, you know, it was done very. Um, <clears throat> um, I mean, it, it was chaotic in some respects, but they would say, you know. We're sending you to these to, to the showers because you know, and they would be, uh, and then they would get in there. The doors would be closed. They would drop something called Cylon B, and it took you know a few minutes, and they would uh, suffocate. Uh, you can imagine what that was like. Um, and the families would be separated. Uh, women, you know, uh, husbands and wives separated, children separated from their parents. Um, Sounds just a little bit familiar, doesn't it? Oh yeah, you know it, it's amazing that uh, I, feel, I feel like history repeats itself because some of the topics that we're talking about today are also relevant to to comment to, to uh, events that are occurring as of right now. You know, and it's uh, it amazes me how you know we were talking about the '30s and it's not too far uh, too far ago, but it's still some of those events and some of the situations that those individuals were in uh, seem to be relevant to today. Yeah, and you know, when you asked me earlier, the Germans know about it, right? Yeah, um, exactly. We know about, you know, we see it. I mean, we have even more sources of information, and what are we doing about it? There are people who are trying to do something. I think the majority of us don't like it, but we're, what are we doing? Exactly. So, it gives you a little bit of an idea. <laughs> Yep, and now, let's, uh, because, you know, we're at 835, let's talk about... um. Kind of, so we're at the concentration camps. Let's uh, try to chronologically to, to the end of uh, the, the the Holocaust. How um, how did it go about actually ending? And you know, could you just elaborate on that? Sure. Well, um, again, by this, by the time of these camps, the idea was that the Jews would be pretty much wiped out, murdered, either directly through the. Uh, I mean, in the beginning, as I mentioned, they. they probably over a million and a half, maybe two million Jews, especially in Russia, Ukraine area, that's what they were murdered. They called the ballot by bullets. Back to the, <clears throat> there's a book written by a priest, uh, interesting, uh, Father Dubois called Murder by Bullets. Um, and he went recently, I heard him speak, he went, he's going back to those areas and finding people to show him exactly the, what we call the killing fields. Um, and uh, he wrote this book, uh, which I would recommend 
murdered by bullets. So many of them had been already murdered, but the, they, those who were murdered in the camps were murdered, you know, as I said, as they entered, as they were sent to Auschwitz and or in others. Auschwitz was a huge camp that included both labor camp. There was a Soviet and Russian POWs there and others, but also the area called the Auschwitz-Birkenau section, which is where they had the, the, uh, the you know, where the Jews were murdered in the, uh, uh, the gas, in the gas chambers. Um, so they that continued all, you know, 42, 43, 44, um, as the Germans began to be defeated, uh, the, war, the murders didn't stop. Uh, but you remember the uh, the Russians, by 40, beginning in uh, nine, I mean, 43, the Russians, who had been pushed back almost to Moscow, St. Petersburg, would then be able to begin to push back. And the, the German, a good percentage of the German army was now defeated, was being pushed out back to Germany or, or surrendered. Um, but the camps continued. And uh, actually the last country to be actually taken over was in Hungary. That's the whole story in itself. We had a, a speaker two years ago who spoke about the Germans, uh, the, the Hungarian Jews, who up to 44 had not been, uh, who had not been captured, basically. That's the whole story about that. The Germans took them over, and then the last Jews to be murdered were the Hungarian Jews, who were, or half of whom were murdered and were rounded up. Ali Wiesel is a good example, who were round, rounded up, who, you know, wrote night and um, sent to these camps. Um, so, and there was a number of revolts within Egypt. By the way, there's a whole other subject about resistance. There was a lot of people with, you know, how come people didn't fight back? They did, there was, I mean, when they could. There was uh, Jews and all the fought back, and there were some revolts in the camps. Not easy to do because they didn't have any weapons, and they were surrounded. And even in the ghettos, you know, the most famous was probably the Warsaw Ghetto, where in 1943, the anniversary, they there was an uprising under terrible and circumstances, but they were able to hold out for months against overwhelming uh, population. Um, there's a book many, many books on this. The one book called The Boy, which has to do with the whole uh, Warsaw Ghetto. You know, there's an iconic picture uh, when they finally defeated those Jewish resistance. You see the picture of a young boy with his hands up. And um, that, I don't know what happened to that boy, but this book was written about the uh, Warsaw Ghetto and did that boy actually survive or not survive. So, there was that um, when they could, uh, even in um, in Poland, in Ukraine, you may have. There was a movie a couple years ago about the Polisky uh, brothers who were able to flee into the woods and and save a couple thousand people by um, <coughs> um, setting up camps in the woods and also fighting the Germans uh, together with the uh, Poland Polish non-Jewish guerrillas, some of whom, unfortunately, were anti-Semitic themselves, uh, didn't ally directly with the 
with the Jews. Um, that's a whole other question about not only the Germans, but the people in other countries who collaborated with the Nazis. Uh, Ukrainians are a good example of that, and many Poles, although there were Poles who also helped Jews as well. Uh, and they were not treated very well either. The Poles, but they, you know, they were treated as slave labor in many years. But <clears throat> um, that's the whole question about what's going on now in Poland and Hungary and other places, uh, rewriting history. Absolutely. And uh, let's see. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back. We'll be able to wrap up the entire show. Um, all right, folks, so this is Paul Segura Show with uh, Professor Weisberger, who is the director of the Holocaust uh, Center at Bristol Community College. He's also a professor. Uh, so we're discussing the entire uh, Holocaust. We'll at least try to go a little bit more in-depth than maybe the typical uh, high school class uh, would. Uh, and we'll, we'll be right back. We're going to finish up the, the show in a little bit, but we'll be right back after these messages. Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America will be holding an informational meeting on September 12th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Attleboro Public Library's Balfour Room. The public is invited to attend the meeting in order to learn about the organization and about common sense ways to reduce gun violence. The group promotes gun safety and legislation that effectively prevents gun violence. To register for the meeting or for more information, you can contact Margie Kelly via email at mkwrite at comcast.com. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes, and you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio, you're busy. Which is great, because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. <laughs> they can! Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test, because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Are you one of the 30 million Americans who skip breakfast every day? We don't need to remind you that skipping breakfast can have a detrimental effect on your health. The Breakfast Place, located at 187 Pleasant Street, across from the Shell gas station, has been serving their customers meals made to order for over 30 years, using vegetables from local farms and cage-free eggs. Owner Casey Darconti opens the Breakfast Place every day from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. for breakfast and lunch. And for those on the go, all meals are available for takeout. Alrighty, folks, we're back live with the Paul Salguero Show. We are with uh, Professor Weisberger, who is the director of the Holocaust Center at BCC, a Bristol Community College, and he's also a professor. Professor Weisberger, you still with us? I'm still here. Alrighty, wonderful. Hope, by the way, I hope that we're talking about makes sense to you. Oh, absolutely, it makes sense to me absolutely, and I think we're doing a good job of. Uh, keeping everything chronologically in order for our listeners. And, uh, again, I want to say thank you for uh, uh, sitting down with us for a good amount of time and, and really uh, talking about a tough topic, I think, but I also think it's important to, to know our history, know what has happened. And, and it's amazing, like we've said pr previously, how relevant some of the stuff now, you know, we talk about, you know, just a couple of examples that come to my mind, the refugee camps that were, uh, you know, so big in the news a few years ago. And today you're talking about children being separated from immigrant parents. And, and it's amazing how uh, the, the things occurring in today's day and age, it's, it, I feel like history is repeating itself almost, you know? Well, there's certain, you know, there's, we always say that, you know, history doesn't exactly repeat itself in the same way, but there's certain trends that seem to be repetitive, and if you don't learn from history, you know, as a cliche goes, you're, you're liable to repeat it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and um, 
you're right. There is there's certain trends, you know. <clears throat> and and like, I think. Uh, people, oh, go ahead. I mean, people would say, "How could anybody believe Hitler? You know, he was just spouting this nonsense." Well, you know, we we hear things being said today that you know don't make any sense. But you know, talking about fake news and things. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Trust, trust me, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, go ahead. So you're, you're right. There's certainly uh, some some things that uh, remind us, at least, of uh, what happened there. Absolutely. I, I want to say quickly. I did. Uh, I did a quick Google search because you said it was about 1.5 million uh, children that were killed during the Holocaust. Correct. Okay, I to give the listeners and, and you too uh, a perspective. Philadelphia in 2016, their population was 1.568. So that is almost uh, equivalent to the amount of children that were that were killed during the Holocaust. Exactly. You know, altogether, six, you know, roughly we say six million Jews were killed. Um, and, and as you pointed out earlier, the other groups also, although not in the same numbers, uh, gypsies, um, certainly millions of uh, POWs were, were murdered, um, and also um, uh, disabled folks. And there were other people um, who were murdered by the Nazis. The thing is that the Jews were particularly... The subject. They were large numbers, especially once you know the war broke out in Poland and Russia and others, and they were particularly targeted um, by the uh, in large, you know, by the Nazis. Yeah, and and to give uh, perspective too, uh, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. I was reading and j- just numbers again. Uh, it, it listed about 200,000 uh, gypsies and uh, up to 200,000 mili- uh, mentally disabled individuals that were murdered, and two to three million Soviet uh, prisoners of, uh, of war that were targeted. Right. You know, you right. know it's, it, it's one thing to talk about the numbers, right? But I really encourage people because it's eye-opening, too. If you see some of the, the, the testimony online, you can go to YouTube and just click, you know, uh, you know Holocaust survivor testimony, and it's because you, you throw numbers out there like oh two to three million six million but it's uh, i feel like it doesn't do justice like you really have to hear a first count of what this was like and just put that and then say listen six million people experienced this over six million rather right uh well no that's a very good point and you mentioned the fact that um when we had survivors who come to speak, we had a man named Stephen Ross who came a couple of years ago, and we had a couple of a number of other people. We have this guy Henry Oster coming, so again, I welcome anybody who's able to come to hear him speak. He's going to be at um, I mentioned Conley High School uh, on November seventh, but also he'll be at BCC uh, um, uh, November eighth at twelve thirty, um, and it's open to the public. So when you hear and his book, uh, The Kindness of the Hangman, has to do with his experience in, in the, a variety of camps. Um, <clears throat> there's a memorial in, in Buttonwood Park in uh, New Bedford that was uh, um, helped to, it got established by another survivor 
name is Abe Landau, who was a tailor for many years in New Bedford, died a few a number of years ago. But uh, his story has also been written up um, as well. So and there's many, many uh, examples of, as you point out, Paul, when you read, when you either hear, listen to testimony or read testimonials, many books are written by uh, survivors. There are about them. Or a book like Night, you know, Ellie Wiesel, one of the most famous survivor. Uh, you can get a real personal sense of what that was like. Uh, one book that I always recommend, we use it in our class, it's called Mouse, M-A-U-S. Do you know that? Uh, I do not. I'm not familiar with it, no. Okay. It's a graphic, it's actually a graphic, it's not a novel, it's a graphic sort of biography, autobiography, by a brilliant cartoonist named Spiegelman. And uh, it's if you want to get a real sense, too, it's, he, um, Art Spiegelman, who is a uh, cartoonist, uh, or, called, or a comic artist, interviewed his father for a number of years, who was a survivor. In fact, his father and mother survived. Mother eventually committed suicide. And he put together a, this book. Uh, it's two volumes or something put together called Mouse, M-A-U-S. And it's all... It's in cartoon form. They say cartoons for but it's brilliant work. And it deals with pre-Holocaust, the Holocaust itself, his father's experience in Auschwitz, and then post-Hospital, what happened to those who survived, and the children of the Holocaust survivors. It's all together. So I would highly recommend, and it's, you know, he, each paddle, is, he took him a couple of years. He, got, he won the Pulitzer Prize for that. It's interesting because I was about to ask you too for uh, for our listeners if you were to recommend any uh, specific book or reading uh, involving the Holocaust, what would you recommend? Would that be the top of your list? Yeah, I would say that was one because you can um, it's a, and one, you can see it on a number of levels, and you know if you're reading comics, um, but it's not you know comics <laughs> um, anyway. That's one I would recommend because you get a real sense of, uh, in a number of ways, you get a sense of what effect did it have on those who did survive, what happened in the camps, and what about their children, the children of survivors. Art Spiegelman is an example. He had a kind of an ambivalent relationship with his dad, and, he, and that comes out in the, in the, in the work. In the, you know. So it's a brilliant work, and so that's one I would recommend. Um, there's a number of... Uh, histories of the Holocaust, one that just came out, and we use one in our in our course, uh, which includes um, um, includes some discussion of uh, other, you know, uh, gypsies and other groups. It's called War and Genocide, A Concise History of the Holocaust by Doris Bergen, B-E-R-G-E-N. And um, it's um, it's a textbook, you know, in a way. But it's uh, it's if you want to get a um, you know an overview of the Holocaust, uh, that's a good book to read. Um, there's another one that just came out by an English author uh, by Lawrence Rees, R E E S, called "The Holocaust: The New History." And you know, we always talk about history is always being rewritten. Not changed, but more as more and more research is done, we learn more and more about a subject. 
Mahalata has been quite a lot of it has been, you know, much of it, of different aspects of the Holocaust has been written. There's just literally hundreds. We have five, six hundred books in our library, which is, you know, literally a thousand. And I mentioned the book, I'm just throwing out things, called The Boy by Dan Port, P-O-R-A-T. has to do, again, with the Warsaw Ghetto. I mentioned Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning, who's one of the leading Holocaust scholars. And has to do again with this uh, called Reserve Police Battalion, Battalion 101, and the Final Solution in Poland. These are the people who, um, you know, shot Jewish people when they were rounded up. How did they do that? You find out that they, you know, a lot of people think that they had to do it, but actually, when they were brought to the site, they were given the opportunity not to do it. And a few of them did refuse, but most of them did it anyway. And they, those who didn't do it were not punished. That's so what I was about of, to ask. What happened to those that refused? Yeah, they weren't. They weren't. You know, the research that Browning did it. They weren't punished. Wow. But, uh, so a lot of the you know we, we have some mythology about you know people being forced to do things. Yeah, and um, because I'm curious, I mean, I, I it, it's a quick Google search, but maybe you, you would know how many uh, Holocaust survivors do are are alive right now. Do you know? I, I don't really have the number, but you know, um, there are um, there's probably you know a number a few thousand, especially those who were younger. We had a last year we had a survivor who was like seven or eight years old at the time. Um, and uh, so some of those who were much younger are still alive. Uh, now this man, Henry Oster, is 90, uh, and he's still doing pretty well. <laughs> he's coming all the way from Los Angeles to speak here. And, and what was the name? So, of, what was the title of his book again? It's called. Yeah, and we're going to be. He's going to be. We'll be selling the book if people wanted to buy it at the time. But it's called the the um, kindness of the uh, hangman, The Kindness of the Hangman. Um, it was subtitled, Even in Hell There is Hope. Um, and there, you know, interesting, we just wanted, there's a man who um, lives in Swansea who grew up in, a Jewish guy, grew up in, he's like 96. He grew up in Germany. He escaped. He managed to get out before the war broke out, but he kind of was around, you know, and not, Nazis took over, and uh, we spoke. With, there was a little article in the Providence Journal about him, and we spoke with him last spring. Uh, I'd like to bring him to, to school. But so there are people around who are still survivors, but fewer and fewer of them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I. I always say, one, people should take a trip to D.C. in their lifetime, and uh, I, I highly recommend uh, seeing the United States Holocaust uh, Memorial Museum because it's, it's moving, and, I mean, you can hear pin drops in there, too, and it's, uh, you learn so much from, from different, ang different aspects of the entire uh, history, and to me, it just, you know, it, it just uh, it kind of motivated me to learn more and to continue learning about it because it's like, like I said, it, 
the typical high school class, you'll touch upon it, but I mean, you know, it doesn't do it justice how much, you know, you don't talk about in a classroom regarding it. But I mean, I highly recommend, and maybe that's something the BCC could do too, maybe a field trip down to that to see the museum. Yeah, we, we've talked about that. It's a little hard to organize. We brought, as I said, we brought some people from the Holocaust Museum to BCC. I'd love, you know, it'd be good to uh, to be able to sponsor a trip if we could uh, or get it organized. Um, but you're right, it's, a, it's an incredible museum. Uh, it was started in 1991, and uh, you spend a couple days there. <laughs> Uh, they just opened up the uh, last year a uh, uh, museum of African American history, which is also great. And that just uh, um, that's not far from the Holocaust Museum. There's also one of Native American. I went to that this summer. So yeah, you go to the mall, and these are all free museums, and you can spend you know a lot of time there. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, that's going to pretty much wrap it up for the Paul Salguero Show. Today we uh, discussed the Holocaust with uh, Professor Weisberger. And again, Professor Weisberger, if somebody wanted to get in contact with you and get involved with the Holocaust Center, how can they do so? Yeah, so uh, again, I want to thank you. Well, you know, I I throw out a lot of information out here, and I I don't know what your listeners, you know, like anything, you get what you get, but then you want to, if you're interested, you want to follow up on it. But uh, we have programming coming up, and you can call me at 508-333-7946. And um, I'm happy to let you know about our programming. And again, the buttons, if you want, anybody wants to either help us with buttons or submit buttons, we'd be happy to do that. Uh, we have our fundraiser coming up November 5th. Uh, it be a wonderful program, so there's lots going on. Um, and uh, you're welcome. People are welcome to come to the Holocaust Center on the main campus, which is um, on the second floor of the library. Already. Uh, Learning Resource Center. And uh, I'd like to do more. I mean, you're in Attleboro. We have an Attleboro campus, as you know. And I'd like to do somewhat more. There's one synagogue that I used to belong to in North Attleboro, Agrius Octane. Uh, I think we want to do some things with them. Um, we did one program. Uh, I wrote a book with my colleague, Dr. Howard Timberg, on teaching the Holocaust, and we did a program at Attleboro campus about our book. But anyway, I'd like to do more about that. So anyway, thank you. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you again for uh, being willing to interview and help uh, educate our community. Um, again, folks, this is the Paul Salguero Show. Uh, we're every Wednesday. We're live at uh, from 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, next week we're gonna uh, we're gonna I'm gonna do some DJ. We'll play some music, uh, and Beautiful then from play. from eight to nine we're gonna have uh, WARA's own uh, Dominic Atoya uh, with us, and we're gonna t- talk a little bit about uh, some music history, listen to some oldies, and uh, you know have some fun with it.